Well, we've got a hearty meal, so let's get right to work. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. You heard that correctly. Verses 1 through 42. Uh, there is no greater blessing than being united by faith to God's Son. It's the greatest possible gift God could give to anybody. To unite us by faith to His Son, that we would receive Him as Savior and Lord, be confronted by the reality of our sin in the light of His holiness only to receive from His merciful heart forgiveness and cleansing from all of our sin, past, present, and future, and to have, present tense, what we will forever enjoy, the Bible calls it eternal life. That is life with God, now and forever. Life with Christ, which Jesus alone can provide for needy, guilty sinners like me and like you. John wrote these 42 verses for a reason. He could have written all sorts of things that Jesus said and did. He tells us in the last chapter that the whole world couldn't contain the books if they wrote it all down, but he, he wrote this down. And he wrote it down for this reason. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. John chapter 4, verse 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear God speak to you. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, Pardon me. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Verse 27. At this point, His disciples came and they were amazed that He had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows, he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. When the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of His Word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. O Lord, seek and save sinners today to be Your worshipers. You know, Lord, that no one, nothing can quench our spiritual thirst but You. We ask that the Holy Spirit would awaken a holy envy, a holy jealousy for Jesus. Many of us came in here parched, not even knowing it. 
So would you make us sensible of our dryness, of our cotton mouth, of our need in our souls for you, and would you reveal to us right here, right now, the all-satisfying living water of your Son. We need you. And we confess this and ask this and expect this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having read 42 inspired verses, better than anything else I'm going to say about them, which reveals Jesus so clearly and so beautifully, I wonder who's ready to get saved right now before I preach a word of the sermon. Seriously, soberly, honestly, joyfully, as winsomely as I know how, if as I read this passage, the Holy Spirit pricked your heart and revealed to you your need for Jesus, I invite you right now to ask Him to forgive you, to save you, and to satisfy you forever with Himself. You can tune me out and do business with God. He will save you right now. Chapter 20, John told us that he wrote everything in this whole Gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you would have life in His name. That's why the passage was written. So if what I've just said applies to you, Tune me out and go directly to the throne room of heaven and ask Jesus to forgive you and to save you and give your life to the one who died and rose again so that you could know him forever. I don't want anybody to miss that point. I do believe that the main point of John 4, not only in light of the whole big point of the Gospel of John, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, have life in His name. But this passage, why John included it, I, I think is mainly to make the Jews jealous. D.A. Carson pointed that out. He said, the emphasis on the receptivity of the Samaritans, you see this whole city comes, it says, and Jesus stays with them two days, and many believe, and hey, we don't believe because of what you said, they say to the woman, but because we've heard for ourselves, this is the Savior of the world. So the receptivity of the Samaritans the introductions of the title that they say, he's the Savior of the world, the interest of the Gentiles in line, Carson says, with the cosmic scale of chapter 1, that he's the Word who created everything. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him, but as many as receive him, he shows God to you, and he makes you God's children. Carson says, in light of all that, this passage conspires to warn Jewish readers not to miss out on the blessing to which they should be the heir. So God's saving the Gentiles, in this case the Samaritans, and it should provoke religious people to say, I want to know God too. I don't want to miss out on eternal life. Carson goes on, John intends to attract some of his own people, the Jews, to the good news of Christ Jesus by making them envious. Holy jealousy. That's why I prayed that. Are you content for the person next to you to spend eternity with God in glory while you miss out? This passage exists to make people have holy jealousy. Carson concludes this way, while the blessings of new life and forgiveness are going to others, some are in danger of being passed by. 
They urgently need to seek out Jesus the Messiah on His terms, not theirs. So if you'll go with me, six things. The setting, the Christ, the Father, the testimony, the harvest, and the Savior. First, the setting. The biblical significance of the setting. Not much needs to be said, but according to verse 4, we're now in Samaria. We know from this passage that Jesus' disciples have been baptizing. Notoriety is being gained. Popularity, kind of a fan club, is, is starting to emerge. And Jesus says, okay, we need to leave. So they go from Judah to Galilee, and Samaria's in the middle. Verse 4 tells us that's where they are. Verse 4 even says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. King James says he must needs go through Samaria. Many have labored the point that Jesus went there on purpose. It was actually the most direct route. But the Jews were known to bypass Samaria from Judah to Galilee because they considered the Samaritans unclean and to go through their land, they really denigrated them saying, I don't want to be defiled by even walking on your ground. The Samaritans were considered unclean by the Jews because of the 8th century B.C. when Assyria took captive the northern tribes, ten of them of Israel, carried them off into captivity. Many of those Assyrian pagans infiltrated the territory of Israel and intermarried with the people, creating a mixed race so the pure Jews would see them as. And according to 2 Kings 17, when they intermarried with the people, they not only created a new ethnicity, but they also amalgamated their deities. They just put Yahweh in the long list of other gods that they worshipped. So the Jews of Judah did not interact with the Samaritans. They would take the Transjordan Highway. It would be like, you know, we in Memphis we have the North Loop and the South Loop. They had the East Loop and the West Loop. And the Jews would travel the East Loop. They would go across the Jordan River on the Transjordan Highway to get to Samaria. They would not take the, the West Loop and go through Samaria. The Samaritans also didn't like the Jews. And they were not permitted, according to the book of Ezra, by the Jews to be part of the reconstruction of the temple. The Jews said, nope, you Samaritans can't come and help us. So the Samaritans said, okay, cool. That's a deal. We'll just build our own temple. So they built their worship house on Mount Gerizim. And they worshiped there instead of going to Jerusalem. So verse 9 says very plainly, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's the setting. It's significant because of its background, Jew-Samaritan interactions, but also because of the specific location, Jacob's well. Verse 5, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. 2,000 years before this passage was written, Jacob's well was dug. It was about 100 feet deep, over 30 meters deep. And 2,000 years later, when Jesus comes and meets the Samaritan woman, water's still flowing. And now, even to this day, 2,000 years later, so 4,000 years since the time it was dug, it's still there. You could go visit it, and water is still flowing. There's a clear focus in that opening section of the setting also not only on Samaritans and Jews, not only on Jacob's well and the place where Joseph was given territory and buried, but also on Jesus' humanity. We're told in verse 6 that he was wearied 
from his journey. So he goes and sits by the well. I believe what John mainly wants us to know from the setting of the first six verses is this. I'm going to make a beeline to Jesus and to who he is and to his character. I think that's what John mainly wants us to see. It's this in the first six verses. The true Jacob. Remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel? The true Israel. The Lord Jesus went to Samaria on purpose, verse 4. He didn't bypass them. He went there on purpose. He stopped at that well, Jacob's well, on purpose. The true Jacob, the true Israel. And it's the place where the Old Testament Joseph was buried. Who is he? He's none other than the risen from the dead Savior of Israel. So the true Joseph and the true Jacob in Samaria on purpose to the Gentiles, the blessing of Abraham is the significance of that setting. Number two, not only the significance, biblical significance of the setting, but the thirst-quenching water of Christ. Number three is going to be our main point, but this is so significant. There are two reasons that Jesus' request to this woman caused her to be taken aback. They were both very cultural and, and uh, symptomatic of the day. Number one, she was a Samaritan. He's a Jew. Number two, she was female. He was male. Both were seen as socially acceptable for basic societal interactions in the first century. But the entire purpose that Jesus says to her, give me a drink, is stated for us in verses like verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's conversing with her about a physical need to get to a spiritual necessity. The woman's categories in response to Jesus were both physical and spiritual. She's still blind. I think she's unregenerate at this point in the passage. I don't think we leave the passage with her still being unregenerate, unsaved. But she has physical and spiritual categories. She says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. That's physical. And spiritually, she appeals to Jacob. She appeals to Joseph. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Oh, she would soon find out. At root, she presumed that she knew better than Jesus how thirsts are quenched. And oh, for an experiential awareness in each of our hearts of what Jesus means in His reply to this dear woman. Do you see in verses 17 and 18 that she's alone at the well? We're told earlier, verse 6 I believe it is, that it's the sixth hour. That means it's about noon. Middle of the day, heat of the day, a.k.a. the time nobody comes to draw water. She came alone Verse 17 and 18 hint at because she was an outcast. So Jesus says to her in verse 13, everybody who drinks of this water is going to get thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst again, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus is using the image right in front of her. The flowing water, a hundred feet underground that was still... Um, still supplying Jacob's well, Jesus is saying, I will make water flow through you that never stops springing up into eternal life. This is getting at the heart of why Jesus went out of his way or on purpose went this way 
to seek out this woman. He was hunting her from the time they left Judah. A.W. Tozer describes, describes it this way, that Jesus alone has the ability to both satisfy our souls while simultaneously creating in us an appetite and a thirst for more of Him. This Samaritan lady was thirsty, but she was thirsty for more than physical water. Jesus knew that she was parched, verse 14, for eternal life. She needed a well of God's provision that would never run dry for all of eternity. And I believe Jesus has passages like Isaiah 55 in His mind as He's talking to her. He talks about thirst and quench and satisfaction and eternal life. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat, which shows up later in John 4, food. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So number two is, the thirst-quenching water of Christ. He is, as John will say clearly later, the living water. He alone satisfies the deep thirst of your soul. That leads us to our main point, number three. The worship-seeking Father. So the biblically significant setting, the thirst-quenching Christ, and now the worship-seeking Father. This woman, do you know her? She had looked so many times to so many sources for ultimate satisfaction. In her case, we know for sure that she had looked where most of humanity looks. She had looked for her identity and her fulfillment in human relationships. Friends, the Bible's baseline for God-honoring marriages is that spouses make wonderful partners, but terrible deities. And she had tried to find satisfaction in husband 1, 3, and 5. And she gave that up because marriage obviously wasn't the fulfillment for her deep needs, so she just starts living with a man to whom she's not married. The worship-seeking father, who's also the son-sending God, is hunting this woman's heart. And Jesus is here at this well to meet her at her deepest point of need. And it wasn't physical thirst. Jesus is showing her that He is the ultimate source of satisfaction. I believe that's one of the main points of this passage. She had had five marriages, verse 18. She's now living with a man to whom she was not married. Everybody knew this woman's reputation. We can deduce that from the end of the passage. She goes into the city and says, this man told me everything I've ever done. They knew. She didn't have to say to them what she was implying. And here's one of the precious truths of the Gospel. This comes straight from the heart of God today for you. The devil knows your name and calls you by your sin because he wants to destroy you Jesus knows your sin and He calls you by your name because He wants to deliver you. When Jesus points out this woman's sin, in verse 18, you've been married five times, you're living with a man you're not even married to. He doesn't do it to destroy her. 
The gospel, I do not believe the gospel motivates anybody by guilt. Yes, you are guilty. The gospel doesn't motivate you by guilt. The gospel's honest with you. God is honest with you. You are guilty, whether you feel like it or not. You're guilty. But he motivates you by kindness and mercy. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. It's the grace of God that woos us out of the tyranny of sin and into the bounty of Christ. The devil knew this woman's name, but he calls her adulterer, adulteress. Jesus knows her sin, and he deals with her in her precious humanity. Yes, Jesus shows her who she is, but he also shows her who he is. Instantly, the worship-seeking Father, we're going to get to that in just a moment, through the Lord Jesus chasing her heart, this woman begins to feel instantaneously like Nathaniel. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 48, where Nathaniel says to Jesus, how do you know me? The woman instantly realized she was standing before a man who knew her better than she knew herself. And she replies in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I believe, and I read a few commentaries that said basically the same thing, she changes the subject. He's pointing out the reality of her sin. And she goes in verse 20 to worship locations. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, I, I hear you. So do we worship there and you guys here? How, how does this work? And Jesus changes the focus again. Not to her sin. Not to Gerizim. Not to Jerusalem. Not which mountain. Not which physical location. But to the Father. Verse 21. God is to be worshipped as Father. Verse 23 and 24. God is Spirit. The Father is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. This woman had never never enjoyed that blessing. In verse 26, the point that Jesus is the Messiah, I who speak to you am He. Do not miss this all-important point from John chapter 4. The Father is seeking worshipers. That's why Jesus went to this woman. He was hunting her heart. So let's deal with these. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and truth. And Jesus is the I Am, the Messiah, the Christ. Under number three, the worship-seeking Father. Who is God? That's the most relevant question in the universe. A lot of people say, oh, the Bible's not practical, theology's not practical, you know, give me something practical. The most practical truth in the universe is there is a God and you are not Him. Who is He? According to this passage, verse 23 and 24, God is spirit. This is one of the three God is statements in the Bible. God is love, God is light, God is spirit. God is spirit means, as our catechism tells us here, He does not have a body like a man. It means He is divine. He is not human. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy 
other. It means that he is, 1 Timothy 1.6, invisible. Nobody can see him. John 1.18, as D.A. Carson said, it means that God is unknowable to human beings unless he chooses to reveal himself. It means you cannot find God on your own. More fundamentally, like the woman at the well, you're not looking for him. According to Romans 3, you're not seeking him. You're not a good person climbing a mountain that's going to get to God one day by your self-effort. If God will be found by you, it's because He's looking for you. He's chasing you. He's hunting you. As Jesus reveals to the Samaritan woman, He already knows everything about you. He's a spiritual being. He's not bound by space and time. There are no limits on His being because He's spirit. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. But that's an understatement. All of God is everywhere all the time because He's spirit. He's not confined or bound by any limitations. This mountain and that mountain are not large enough to contain him. He is spirit. He is everywhere all at once. God is the most present person in this room. He's closer to you than the chair on which you sit. As Solomon prayed, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this little house, the temple, which I have built for your name, God is transcendent. That's what is meant by His Spirit. He's more exalted than the highest thought you have ever or will ever have about Him. You don't have categories to exhaust His immensity. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so also is God above you. Isaiah 55. Heaven is His throne. The earth is His footstool. You cannot build a place for Him to rest. This is the glorious good news for those who truly know Him in Christ. Because it means we can worship Him anywhere, anytime. As our John Telios study said to us a few years ago in that small group Bible study, quoting the hymnody of William Cooper, Jesus, where'er Thy people meet, there they behold Thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek Thy face, Thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. God is spirit. For those who know God in Christ Jesus, there is never a divorce between sacred and secular. All of life is sacred. Christians do not worship Him there and not there. As this woman is confusing the, the situation, all of life is sacred. All of life is lived unto God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 as a spiritual service of worship. That's all derivative of the reality that God is spirit. So what does it mean that we worship Him in spirit and in truth? I'm glad you asked. The worship that God accepts is not man-made. It's not man contrived. It's not man initiated. It doesn't start with man. True worship is neither conceived in the mind of man nor powered by the will of man. God-pleasing worship is dependent on God's initiative to create in you, to create, let's say it this way, a spiritually alive person and to reveal to them the truth of who He is, to fill us with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit Himself, and enable us to delight in Him without diminishing His glory. That's my mouthful way of saying spirit and truth. Put simply, spirit and truth worship is God-wrought, God-centered, God-empowered worship 
for the glory of God. Such worshipers, get this, the Father is seeking. Now he's not looking around to find out where they were and then invite them to his party. He's seeking them in this way. He's making them. He's creating them. He's searching for not already good spirit and truth worshipers so that he can invite them to his party. He's searching for the dilapidated houses of humanity that have been totally ruined and decimated by sin. We need a total overhaul, healing, renovation, restoration, remaking, rebuilding, refashioning, renewal into his likeness so that we can join God in the happiest place in the universe. And this is why I said my opening line. I don't know who caught it. But the happiest place in the universe, the most satisfying place in the universe, which is what Jesus is saying to this woman, you've never been satisfied. Marriage didn't do it. Water won't do it. You're going to have to come back and get more of this. But I can give you something that will satisfy forever. The most satisfying, the happiest place in the universe is the much-making of God. That's the happy place. The Father is seeking worshipers who join God in the happy enjoyment of making much of God. He saves us so that we can join Him in that endeavor to glorify Him. You will know that God is the one who has made a worshiper when God alone is the one worshipped. So true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. They're spiritually alive, they're spirit-filled, and they worship God who is spirit. They don't relegate worship to certain times and places. All of life is worship. But in truth, that means God governs who we worship and how we worship. He gets to dictate the terms of worship. That we come to Him in the ways that He says are acceptable, that is, in His Son, and we come to Him according to His character, His Word. What he says is acceptable before him dictates the way we approach him. We don't presume that we can just traipse into his presence and treat him like some relegated, you know, like better version of ourself. But we come to him reverentially, humbly, or as Isaiah said, with fear and trembling. True worshipers don't worship in our own power, but by the Spirit. And we don't worship according to our own standard, but by God's truth, his word and his Son. And Peter says, such worship is accomplished, quote, by the strength which God supplies so that God may get all the glory through Jesus Christ. So God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He is the worship-seeking Father. And this point ends with verse 26. Jesus is the only one who can qualify you to worship God this way. According to verse 26, he reveals himself clearly to the Samaritan woman as the Messiah. Uh, We know the Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. In the original, there's no pronoun, he. I who speak to you, I am. After telling the woman that God is spirit and the Father is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus then tells her how she can become such a worshiper. That is through the only Savior that God's provided for humanity. She had a Jew-Samaritan distinction. Jesus is saying, salvation comes from the Jews. I who speak to you am He. 
Literally, I am the I am. The Samaritans, a little kind of spiritual background, when they had their falling out with the Jews, post-Assyrian invasion, 722 B.C., and post the time of Ezra, when the Samaritans were not permitted to join the Jews in the rebuilding of the temple, they said, okay, cool. We're not going to follow your holy books either. We already have Moses. So the Samaritans adhered to the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible written by Moses, not the remainder of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the writings, the history books, the prophets. So when Jesus says to this woman, I am, he's speaking to her from Exodus 3, her holy book. The Savior you say you're looking for is the very one Moses encountered in the burning bush and now I'm standing in front of you beside this well of water which leads us to our third, uh, pardon me, our fourth point, verse 27 to 30. I love this. The city drawing testimony. When the I am stands in front of this woman, and I believe she's regenerated somewhere in between these verses, listen to her testimony. When this woman realizes that she's standing face to face with God, the I am, her Messiah, the one who alone satisfies her deepest longings of her soul, quenches her spiritual thirst, gives her enjoyment in God, with God forever, she immediately goes and tells everybody. There's something intuitive that happens to somebody when they're saved. Now, you can't see my heart and I can't see yours, but I do know this about every saved person. It's intuitive. You feel as if you are the worst sinner who's ever lived. That's innate to redemption. And consequently, you perceive Jesus to be so wonderful that if He can save a sinner like you, He must therefore be able to save anybody. That's this woman's experience. Instead of hiding from her past, she leverages it and uses it as a launching pad to persuade other people to come to Jesus too. Her her testimony is basically, if Jesus can save me, I know He can save you. Look at what she does. She does something totally counterintuitive to the world. She goes and reports to everybody that she is exactly who they know her to be. And a stranger is ready to tell them exactly who they are, just as he had done for her. She's finally free from the tyranny of seeking satisfaction in broken cisterns. She's no longer putting the little bucket of her life down into the empty well of other people to try to meet her deepest needs. She's now relying on the cleansing water of Christ to purify and fill her deepest needs. She's eager for others to know His grace too. Do you have that eagerness? The disciples didn't get it. There's a lot of conjecture about when the disciples are regenerate. When are they saved? I don't know. But in verse 27, they don't get it. They give Jesus a passive-aggressive rebuke for his act of mercy toward the woman. But do you see in verse 27, the woman's so full of joy, verse 28, she forgot why she even came to the well in the first place. We're told, John tells us, verse 28, she left her water pot and ran back to the sea. I thought she was there to get water. She was, and she found it. And we're told in this passage, she says to all the men, I don't think that's an unintentional subtlety by John, 
She said to all the men, come see a man. A man who told me everything about me. Friends, you do not have to know much to point people to Jesus. You just have to know Jesus. New converts, aren't they usually some of the best evangelists? That's why when somebody joins this church, we say, give us the names of five lost people that you're connected to right now. We're going to pray with you for them that God will use you to reach them. Aren't new converts usually some of the best evangelists? They get their zeal knocked off by hanging around saved people. That's a shame. That's an indictment on us. People who don't know any better than to tell everybody that they should come to Jesus too, don't you just love being around those kind of people? That they just tell everybody, you can find grace too. You can find mercy too. And I know it because I found it and I'm the worst sinner I know. When you know the saving grace of Jesus, you know enough to tell everyone where they can find a drink of satisfying living water also. Now, I want to be honest. It's December the 13th. I don't say this for guilt. I say this for a wake-up call. December 13th, 2020. Been a hard year from 2020. I think it's about the most ripe our land has ever been for hope. I say it as a wake-up call, not, not guilt. I don't even want to say it heavy. I want to say it lovingly, but I want to say it clearly. Have you told one person in this calendar year about the living water? Friends, this woman has an involuntary impulse. She throws down her bucket. She runs to all the other lost people she knows, and she says, the I am is standing over here next to this well, you need to come meet him. That leads to number five, the white ripe harvest. This is so abundantly obvious, it preaches itself. It's verses 31 to 38. This woman's not the only person who's satisfied in this passage. Jesus is so deeply satisfied. The disciples come back. I said they gave him a passive-aggressive rebuke. Why are you talking to a woman? Aren't you hungry? And Jesus says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was more satisfied than whatever fast food they had picked up on their little journey. Satisfied their belly. Jesus wants all his followers to know the satisfying, fulfilling joy of being about the Father's business. And so he tells his disciples, look up. Just look up. Open your eyes. Yes, we should pray for opportunities to share the gospel, but when we pray for opportunities, Lord, please put somebody in my pathway today with whom I can uh, share the good news of Jesus. You know what he does? He just opens your eyes to all the opportunities that were already there to begin with. And so Jesus says to his followers, verse 35, the fields are white for harvest. Verse 36, God is sending out reapers. God has appointed sowers. Each has his assignment from the Father. Verse 37, all are engaged in the Father's business together. Jesus tells his followers that they too are, verse 38, sent out ones, working together with all the other sent out ones. Friends, God has put people in your life that he intends for you to reach with the gospel. If you don't tell them, God doesn't lose. You don't subvert God's eternal sovereign purposes in redemption he'll just raise somebody else up in your place who'll go tell them 
If you don't go, you lose. Not God, not them. But what a joy to be engaged with God in the great task of reaching the lost and pushing back the darkness. May the Lord fill this church again with a spirit of aggressive evangelism. We once had that. I don't think we do today. All we need is a fresh encounter with the I am. All we need is a fresh sip of the living water and the deep satisfaction that Jesus provides for sinners like us and instantly we'll throw our buckets down and we'll be about the Father's business. Finally, the worldwide Savior. Verse 39 to 42, I started by saying I think the point of this passage is to make the Jews jealous. I still think that. There's so much detail in there that it'd be easy to focus on any of the things we've talked about already. Verse 39 to 42, the worldwide Savior. Remember, D.A. Carson said the main point of this passage is, quote, to make the Jews jealous. In chapter 1, we read in John's Gospel that Jesus came to his own, the Jews, and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. His own rejected him, but others, like the Samaritan woman and those in her city, receive him. I believe what John is doing in this passage is saying Jesus is not a tribal deity. He's not just going to save your kind and people just like you. He's the only Savior for the world, the worldwide Savior. He came to show that God's heart is so massive that it envelops the whole world, including the people like the Samaritans who you despise, who you avoid, who you go the long way around so that you won't be defiled by them, that's precisely the people Jesus is looking for. That's why, in light of this passage, about two months ago I stood in this pulpit and I prayed, God, make this church the landing place for all the people that nobody else wants. God, give us a heart. Not just for our tribe. Jesus isn't a tribal deity. He's the worldwide Savior. And when He saves... He satisfies. And we're still standing around a hungry, unsatisfied humanity. And many, maybe some even among us today, have been around people who walk with Jesus for most of your life. And just like this passage is seeking to provoke religious people to actually come to Christ, I want to say to you, you ought to be provoked right now to holy jealousy to want in on the satisfying fullness of Jesus for yourself. Colossians 1 says the hope of glory is not to be near Christ or next to somebody who knows Christ or born into a family that has Christians in it. The hope of glory is Christ in you. The hope of glory. So we're told in the end of this passage, this worldwide Savior, that many Samaritans, verse 39, believed in Him because of the word of the woman. So the Samaritans, verse 40, come to Jesus and they said, would you just stay with us longer? Isn't that amazing? He's telling them all the bad stuff about them and they're saying, please stay longer. That must mean that they did not detect any indication that he wanted to destroy them by revealing who she was and who they are, but he wanted to deliver them. We're told in verse 41 what happened. That many believed because of His Word. And then they turn to this woman and they say, thank you. 
We don't believe because of what you said anymore. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed, here's the worldwide Savior, the Savior of the world. Jesus told, I think, we get this encounter, one of the longest discourses in the Gospel of John, Jesus and this woman, just like Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3. He, he's really speaking against the self-righteous Jews. He's seeking out a Samaritan woman to show his heart, yes, for her, but also for the whole world, and to provoke his own to see that they need him. While the religious crowd was busy, they were disciples out ordering lunch and doing their own thing, trying to provide for Jesus and tell him where he had gotten a few things wrong by talking to a lady. Jesus was simultaneously providing living water for this Samaritan woman, satisfying her soul in himself forever. Do you know that fountain of satisfaction? We're told that many in that city believed in him. Until the religious crowds from Judea got to this point, they could not be saved. They could not find satisfaction that God alone provides in Christ. As we say around here often, the, the gospel's got to tear you all the way down before it can begin to build you up like it did with this woman and these people from Sychar, and this city. Christianity is you being filled, living water, springing up into eternal life, Christ filling you and constantly filling you and bursting forth from you back in praise to God and commending Him to a lost world. Christianity is all of Jesus and none of self. I love verse 41. Many more believed because of His Word. I love verse 42. We don't believe because of what you said, We've heard for ourselves that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Have you come to Him? Have you put the straw of your life into the ocean of His fullness and have you drank deeply from His satisfying, saving capacity? Have you gone to the foot of the cross where this same Jesus took this woman's sin, the sins of the people in that city, the sins of His disciples, the sins of so many in this room, have you gone to the cross of Jesus and said, that was my sin for which He died? Have you gone to that empty tomb and said, oh, I want to drink of His risen power. I need the forgiveness that He alone provides. Have you thrown yourself into the merciful arms of the risen Jesus? This is our application. Jesus knows everything about you. And He's still hunting your heart. Isn't that amazing? He's not turning you away because of what you've done. I've heard too many people say through the years, Preacher, you don't know what I've done. You're right. But astonishingly, Jesus does and He's still chasing you. He's not discarding you because of your past. He's hunting you down to show you that He alone can forgive you and cleanse you and heal you and change you no matter what your past may be. He already knows and amazingly, He still loves you. And He wants to make you His own to show off the magnanimous heart of God to make you a trophy of His grace. Your sin doesn't 
have to define you like this woman's sin had defined her. Starting today, like that Samaritan woman, Christ can be all your identity. He defines His people. He knows everything about you and He he still wants you. Number two, if you don't know Him, you ought to be provoked to jealousy to want to know Him. Carson's line again is Jesus indeed attracts Uh, Jesus intends to attract people to the good news of Christ Jesus by making them envious. I think that's why this passage is in John. So that the religious people, the Jews, would say, man, he's saving them? How are we going to miss out? I pray that you'll be provoked to holy jealousy if you don't know Jesus. Number three, somebody's got to go to those people. Just like Jesus went on mission to the Samaritan woman and the woman went on mission with Jesus to her city, somebody's got to go to people who are living in darkness with no hope, lost in their sin, and headed to a Christless eternity in hell. That's why every Sunday, today we prayed for the people of the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire. Somebody's got to go to the 2.6 million Muslims that we heard about today in the pastoral prayer. Somebody has to go to all those who are living in darkness with no hope, lost in their sin, headed to a Christless eternity in hell, and they're all over our city. They're in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, your extended families. We haven't given a call here in a long time at Grace Church, and that's I take the blame for that. That's certainly a weakness. That's certainly a missing, glaring absence. We have not given a call here in a long time at Grace Church for every single person to lay their yes on the table again before Jesus. And that's what I'm calling you to today. If He saved you, He's sending you. You're saved to be sent on mission with Him. The fields are white unto harvest. The disciples who were with Jesus did not understand His heart for the nations at this point in His ministry. But do you know what those same men who went to get lunch on the day Jesus was talking to this woman did just a few years later? Those very same men who didn't understand how in the world he could be saving a bunch of Samaritans. Just a few years later, we look at them in the book of Acts and they're totally on board with God's heart for the nations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. These men are being propelled all over the known world, near and far, with the gospel of Christ for the glory of God and people are getting saved all over the place. Tradition tells us that Peter made it to Italy before he was martyred. Andrew, Peter's brother, became an apostle to the Greeks. Thomas is reputed to have made it to India with the gospel. Matthew went to Ethiopia. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot went to Lebanon, modern-day Beirut. Leon Mars says the main point in John 4 is that Jesus, quote, came to bring salvation for people of all races. Friends, I'm calling us today, I believe God's calling us today, so Him through me, to put your yes on the table again. Are you willing, near, far, here or there, to say yes to God's call on your life to be an ambassador for Jesus? Here's the last comment. It's the most important application in John's Gospel every single week. Believe and live. That's the theme of the sermon series. Believe and live. That's what every sermon in this entire series is about. John, why did you write chapter 4? Why did you tell us about this Samaritan woman? These things have been written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you, like her, will have life in his name. After I pray, we're going to sing the doxology. Pastor Brown will come and close our service. Oh, Father, thank you for your merciful heart. Thank you that you sent your Son, our Savior, the I Am, the the true Jacob, the true Joseph. Thank you that you sent the fulfillment of the blessing that you covenanted to Abraham, the blessing to the nations, Jesus the Lord. We thank you that he's the living water who quenches our deepest thirst now and forever. We thank you that you know us fully, that you are spirit and that you are to be worshipped in spirit and truth that you are seeking out worshipers who will join you in making much of you and we thank you that you save us to send us and Lord we all know lost people we all know people who aren't bound the need of Jesus who are looking for satisfaction everywhere but him oh God Would you cause this church to be so blessed, so spirit-filled that we are raging, winsome, Jesus-saturated, broken-hearted, gospel-bold evangelist? Let us go tell people. I ask that you would even, over this Advent season, give us the great joy of telling others about the greatest joy. And Lord, I pray for any among us who don't know Him. I pray that You would provoke holy jealousy, spiritual envy. Why are they getting saved and not me? How do they get to know Jesus and not me? I pray that You would cultivate a thirst, an appetite, a hunger for Christ, for Yourself. And that You would draw people to His risen fullness. Thank you, God, for your grace. Our yes is on the table to you. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Use us. Fill us with the Spirit. Don't let us be so myopic and self-centered that we don't see what you're up to. Raise our eyes to see this white harvest all around us. And use us, God, as reapers and sowers for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.